nonviolent parenting is not easy. I say that all the time. There's nothing easy. There's nothing quick and simple about raising children in this way. Um, but who said parenting was supposed to be easy, quick and simple? I could pop them and smack them and, you know, shut them down and then I can go on about my life. But what kind of adult am I raising? So it's um, it's definitely a process, a tough process at times. Peace and light, y'all. You are listening to another episode of The Spiritual Homegirl, where we discuss all things regarding self-development and bettering your spirit, but from the homie perspective, somebody who's going through the journey day by day, just like you. Hey, y'all, it's your girl, Maria, The Spiritual Homegirl, and we are back with another episode of The Spiritual Homegirl Podcast. Now, you know I can't get started without thanking you all for listening to the show. Out of the tens and thousands of podcasts that are in podcast land, you choose to limit your ears uh, once a week for about an hour or so, and I hella appreciate that. Now, I'm really excited about this week's guest because I've been watching this woman's work for the past two years, actually since I started the podcast, and I've always thought of her as a great um, episode guest. And the person I'm referring to is Cresha Esquivel. Now, it's a lot that she does when it comes to the field of education and child development. So I'm going to try to quickly list off what she has done. First and foremost, she's an, a, a mother and she's an educator. And she's also the author of Losing Control, which is a guide to successful nonviolent parenting. And she's been working in the field of early education for about 22 years. And she's done training, tech, technical assistance, curriculum development, um, creating safe environments for early education settings, and um, also various state and federally funded grants. So if it's one thing this woman knows, it's, it's early uh, childhood education and development. Um, she also guest lectures at colleges, universities, and she talks about parenting, attachment parenting, and just overall best practices with early education. Now, Krisha's trained at regional and national conferences, She's presented workshops for school districts, um, Head Start agencies, and private nonprofits. I mean, as we speak, she's in D.C. doing more training. So if it's one thing Krisha is about, it's about constant learning and growing as an adult. And um, she, again, she'll train you if you need you know, assistance, and we'll go into that a little bit more during her interview. But, I mean, she talks about effective supervision, coaching, caregiver-child interactions, um, and other topics that relate to like, you know, the family units, um, adults dealing with children, as well as again, education, um, educators as well. Um, and again, her, our topic is actually about non-traditional parenting. I don't know if you guys picked that up from, um, what I've been listing about her, but she does so much stuff and she's so, um, focused on constant growth and training and development for herself as well as for the youth. Her approach is not traditional in any, any sense of the word and she's also about to be a ted talk speaker so i got my first ted talk speaker yes i'm so excited so i'm happy to get her before she you know before she goes on ted talks you know shuts her stuff i'm happy to be able to say i got her story and oh i'm so excited but um but yeah today is actually her firstborn's birthday so this alignment is so dope so I was watching it for two years, and then I interview her, and then the episode um, goes live on her firstborn's birthday, which is really cool. So happy birthday. So it's really, um, I'm really happy, and I'm really excited to present to you all um, Krisha's interview. Now, the reason why I'm so excited is because, like I said before, her approach to parenting is anything, um, anything other than anything but traditional, really. I mean, and I know you're probably like, Maria, you don't have no kids. Why are you, why are you doing this? And it's because... When it comes to parenting, 
I, I think just because you don't have children, I think that, you know, I mean, obviously those who have children will obviously take something from this. But if you don't have children, hearing a different approach on how to parent kind of forces you to reevaluate how you were parenting. And I kind of go into how I was parenting. And Krisha definitely goes into her story as to how she was um, raised in her interview. But it just makes you kind of wonder, you know, now granted, parents do what they do the best they know how, but it makes you wonder like what if they knew other ways to go about it. So we actually, again, we'll, we'll get into that. And I'm also doing a giveaway of her book, losing control, a guide to successful nonviolent parenting. I'll be doing that as well. So follow my Instagram for details on that. And it will go live Thursday, which is today. Cause you know, it's home girl Thursday. I do episodes every Thursday. So with that being said, enjoy. Peace y'all. I'm speaking with Krisha Escavel. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you. All right, so let's just jump right into it. For those who do not know, who is Kresha? Uh, Kresha is a mom, first and foremost. I have two kids who are about to be uh, 12 and 10. I am an early education child development parenting expert. I am an author. Um, I'm super active, and um, I like to eat. I like desserts, and I love coffee. That's me in a nutshell. I was just about to bring up the love for coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's my staple. Everybody knows. My staff know. I can come to work with a cup of coffee on my desk. I'm like, thank you, guys. I love you all. <laughs> so, Krisha, where are you based out of? I am based out of California, Southern California. Um, more specifically, I guess, San Fernando Valley, L.A. County area is where I'm at. So what was the journey um, personally in terms of you finding your, your passion and, and your, it sounds like your, your mission and purpose through um, childhood, you know, being an expert on childhood education and development? So there, it's kind of twofold. So my degree, my undergrad degree was in child and adolescent development. And that in itself was a little strange because I didn't start off with that as my major. I started off in a different major, and but I always worked in child development centers and people would say, oh, you're going to be so great in the field. And I was like, what are you talking about? Um, And so my last semester, I changed my major. And ever since then, you know, when when you're on the right path and you go through the right doors, they all open up. So it started from there um, where I had always had a love for children who were underrepresented, whether it be children with special needs, children from disadvantaged uh, communities, whatever it is, just the underdog, for lack of a better term. Um, Then I kind of moved into program and wanting to be the one to make decisions. And along that path, I had a couple kids and really started reflecting on how I was raised, what I liked, what I didn't like, um, and made very conscious decisions to not parent the same way for my kids or with my kids. Um, Along that path, too, I was married for about nine, 10 years or so. And so when we separated and then subsequently divorced, um, I became even more cognizant of my stress level um, in terms of what society said about single parents and single family households. And I was really determined to not become a statistic and my kids become a statistic and change the status quo in terms of what single family homes look like and that stigma around it. So even before I wrote a book and everything. I had a whole other blog called Why Did I Get Married? And um, it took me through, it took readers through the journey 
of my marriage and how I decided and dis- the, the decisions I made, the court system, all of those things, and how I really worked through that process to ensure that the what I call adult stressors that I was going through didn't trickle down to my kids and that how could I be fully present with them and make sure that because I had to go to court tomorrow, because me and their dad, you know, weren't getting along at the moment, that I wasn't transferring that to them Mm -hmm. and also opening myself up to what they were going through. They were really young. They were uh, one and a half and about three and a half. So they weren't understanding exactly what was happening, but I was very aware that I didn't want them to feel any type of trauma. Again, that was associated with divorce and loss and all those kinds of things. So everything was always very normal for them. You know, when when I moved out of the house, it was like, you're going to have two homes, you know, come, let's go see your new room. What do you want to take from this house to that house? And so even now that they're older, they just say we have, they have two houses. They to this day, believe mommy and daddy are like best friends. We've always done birthday parties together. Um, they really don't know any difference. And we don't use the word divorce because it has a negative connotation. Um, I still don't even know if they ever realized that we were married, but they just know they have two homes. Mommy and daddy talk when they need to. We're at, they're at every school event. Um, and so in making that cognizant decision to be very present with the children and understand their emotions and understand their loss that they might feel. Um, It helped me to realize that in researching that I was doing a certain type of parenting that I didn't even know existed. I thought I was just kind of being mindful. um, And I realized that what I was doing was called attachment parenting, really following their lead, understanding what their needs were, not pushing them to do much. Um, And from that, I said, oh, this is great. You know, this is what I didn't get. This is what I see is working for them. And so then I kind of took it a step further because I started um, really observing how society was in general towards children and being that I've always had an affinity, um, like I said, to the underserved or disadvantaged or those populations that people kind of push to the side. I started really noticing that children are the lowest on the totem pole. Like we're jerks to children. We treat them as if they are less than. We don't give them their basic human rights. And so that took me on a different angle in terms of really advocating for all children and understanding their life in the moment where they are at their age and meeting them where they are while gently helping them get to the next level so that they can become productive adults. Um, And so then I started doing different things. I started telling people, no, I don't hit them or spank them. I don't hit anybody. I'm not a violent person in life. Why would I hit the youngest people who have the least ability to take care of themselves or defend themselves? It didn't make sense. Um, So as I started posting and doing things like that, I realized, you know, I went through a training called um, nonviolent communication through a center out here in LA, the Echo Center, and started realizing what I'm doing is nonviolent parenting. Those strategies and those tenants that are used in nonviolent communication are transferable to parenting and looking at a child as their own individual person and what does that do for their overall growth and self-esteem. So that was my journey into doing it and it really has become a way of life for me um, and for my kids to where sometimes they interact with people or other adults who aren't like me and it really throws them off, which I like. 
I want them to be thrown off. I don't want them to think that an adult can talk to you crazy simply because of their age. Um, but it's created some special situations as well because people think they're disrespectful if they give their opinion. But um, that's a whole different story. So, yes. So that was my journey, um, I guess, kind of in a nutshell, uh, a long nutshell. But that was my journey set. So it was like through college, through marriage, through divorce, reflection of my childhood, through having children, and just really having a concrete idea and plan of what I didn't want my children to go through and feel and experience and figuring out a positive way to get them to what I think is a positive end result. That's one heck of a journey, Krista. Like, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where do I start with, because with, I, I mean, going back really quickly to the divorce and, you know, the it sounds to me like you and your ex-husband do a really good job co-parenting. And I mm-hmm. have literally heard of situations as recent as a couple of days ago of um, examples where co-parenting is just hard. Even 10, 15 years later, it's still hard. So, like, what advice do you have for those who have gone through a situation where they're no longer with their child's mother or father and they are still struggling to get to that place where they can co-parent peacefully? Yeah, it is hard. And and I don't act like it's not. To this day, I'm sure we both get frustrated with each other. I know I get frustrated with him. The thing about it is that, you know, I get frustrated with him, but that has nothing to do with the kids. And that's the piece that as adults, you know, I, and I use the term a lot, our adult decisions shouldn't affect children. So, yes, it's hard, but our children shouldn't know it's hard. Our children should have no idea that you just got a text message with them saying he's going to be late. They shouldn't know that. So it's about adults learning to regulate themselves and keeping the children on the forefront. You know, there have been parent conferences we sat in together where the next day we had to go to court and go to trial. The kids didn't know and the teachers in the classroom didn't know. And that's a cognizant decision that both parents have to make that no no matter what we're going through at the moment, this birthday party with all with both sides of the family there and both of us in the picture cutting the cake with the kids is going to happen because these are their memories, not us. So it's that piece of it where basically as adults, we have to take our, take our emotions and push them to the side and realize that it's the children's lives who are, who will be negatively impacted if we don't um, check ourselves essentially. Um, one of the, Jokes I always tell people, my kids have been at the same school for a while. My son is in sixth grade now. He started in kinder. I would say probably a year and a half ago is when they finally realized that we aren't even married. They had no idea (laughs) because we go to all the events together, parent conferences. I would walk in, they would call me Mrs., you know, and I, you know, I wouldn't correct them because correcting them would kind of seem petty. No, that's not my name. No, we aren't married. So why do that? Um, but really, it was probably about a year and a half, two years ago, I had a parent come up to me and was like, I'm so sorry. And I said, what? You know, I know you guys aren't together anymore. I said, we haven't been together for the past seven, eight years. And they were like, what? <laughs> I had no idea. I said, yeah, that's the point. You know, not that we're like lovey-dovey. You know, that's the point. I don't need you guys to know because if you guys know, then our kids are going to pick up on, on some kind of discourse. Um, so, no, it's not easy. I have a great circle of friends who, when necessary, I can vent to. I have people who understand. 
you know, I can just send a quick text and like, here we go again or whatever it is. But that never trickles down to the kids because at the end of the day, the kids love me as much as they love their dad. They need us both. He's a great father. He's a great, you know, caregiver to them. Um, And so any other personal things have no play into how we parent. I love that answer. It just sounds so, it sounds so mature. And it's like at the end of the day, it's selfless when it comes to how y'all are able to put whatever things that y'all were going through aside. And you're like, you know what, look, this is done. However, this journey with the children is just beginning. Let's make sure we put them at the very forefront. Let's put all Mm -hmm. of our stuff to the back to the point where y'all don't even know anything that's going on. I can really respect that because there's parents that I've seen firsthand that that are really struggling with being able to put the pettiness aside to, without letting their kids yeah. know or their feelings or sometimes I'll see situations where people mm-hmm. will hold the children from the other parent. So I really yes. I really respect that. And I'm glad you shared that. Um, thank you. Cause... And and to be very honest too, it, it did take a lot of work. I, I you know I'm a big proponent of therapy. And I, you know, I was in therapy for a very long time because it's not something you can do by yourself. You know, I say I went to a a professional therapist and then my other blog was also my therapy and my outlet because I'm a writer and I am a natural introvert. So writing is very soothing for me. Um, And so those two together, along with time and again, along with having the right people to support me and to help me through, um, really made the difference because it's not something that I did alone. It's not something I could ever do alone. And it's not something that I do alone right now. You know, I was going to ask you about about therapy, but more so, well, I don't know, because the children were so young. Did you Mm -hmm. ever put the children in therapy or was there no need because they were so young? Right. No, there was no need because they were so young. I said my daughter was 18 months and my son was three and a half. And because we, you know, before we broke up, we didn't like argue in the house or anything. There was really nothing to work through. Now, of course, when they were with me and they were younger, they'd be like, I miss daddy. I know, but you'll see him on this day. So there were a lot of strategies that, again, you know, on my old blog, I talked about like having a calendar so they could see when they were going back to daddy's. Um, You know, when I They always were able to, I never locked my cell phone. They could just pick it up and call their dad whenever. And now they have their own cell phone. So it was never like you need to ask me first. It was like, oh, can I call daddy? Okay, you know, be off with your phone. I don't know how long, you know, whatever it is. So I always tried my best to make sure that they, that even on those times when you miss them, it was an an act just like you miss grandma because you haven't seen her. You know, go ahead and call her. You miss daddy, go ahead and call him. You know, if it wasn't, quote, unquote, his day and they were like, can we go to daddy's? Yeah, sure. You know, call him, see if, see if he's around, you know? So as much as we have a schedule, it's still very flexible because if the kids want to go over, cool. If the kids want to come home early, call me, you know what I mean? Um, it's not like, no, it's not his day. Sorry. <laughs> wow. So they've never yeah. really had to work through anything. I mean, you know, they've never had to work through a lot we've worked through things. Don't get me wrong in terms of moving or whatever it is, but, um, I don't think it was a direct impact of us splitting up. So my mother, I interviewed my mother a couple episodes ago, and my mom had, well, my parents didn't divorce until I was about maybe 20. So I really didn't catch a lot of the the, the um, aftermath because I was, I was in college by that point. My sister, I think, was about mm-hmm. 17. My little brother was four. So um, my mom basically took, custody you know they they agreed that she would have primary custody of my sister and my brother 
but my mother was still, you know, my mother's a teacher. I think it's really interesting. Like you and my mother have a lot of similarities, especially professionally, because <laughs> my mom, she's currently in school for her. Um, she always corrects me when I say this wrong. I always be like, Dr. Mom. But she's like, it's an ED doctorate or, or oh, something ED? like that. Yes, yes. Yeah. I'm like, PhD. She's like, no, no, Maria, it's an EDD. I'm like, oh, my bad. <laughs> so she's currently in her EDD right now. My brother's 16 at this point. And I remember her getting her specialist degree in the midst of the aftermath of the divorce. So how are you able to launch a book and take these trainings and still co-parent effectively in the midst of having two young kids? Like they're, they're babies essentially. Yeah, they were babies. <laughs> um, it, 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 for me, it goes back to what is my overarching motivation and passion. And I tell people, my pas- I have a passion for all children, but first and foremost, the spearhead of the passion for children starts with my own. So the work that I do is for all children, but it's, a, it's directly for the two that I'm raising. So although it was hard to leave them as I go to trainings, because even now I, do a, I go on a good amount of like business trips for work, but they revolve around either getting additional training, presenting trainings or whatever, I understand that I'm doing it um, so that I can be an example to my children and I can still um, affect change to other children who don't have parents who or a mom or whatever who's like me at the moment. So they have always been my motivation and they have always been my driving force um, so that I can be an example for them and for other moms who have young children, who are going through things, your life doesn't stop. Um, so find that thing that will keep you going because there are a number of times when I could have just stayed in bed and I wanted to just stay in bed, um, and I didn't because I had two little ones who were looking at me, who were hungry, who wanted to go outside and play. And, again, you know, my adult decisions shouldn't affect their childhood. So how can I continue to increase their their Um, positive experiences, and be an example. So even in writing my book, um, they were pretty young. They were uh, both in younger elementary school. And of course, they were still sleeping in my bed. So I would put them to bed in my room, and I had a desk set up and a laptop. And I would tell them, okay, I need you guys to go to sleep. Once you guys go to sleep, I, you know, I had the little desk lamp. I said, I'm finishing my book. Oh, okay. So they would go to sleep and I would be typing away. And when I was done, I would get into bed. And they were like, mommy, how long were you up working on your book? You know, and I would tell them, wow, you know, so so then when I was done with it, I said, you guys, look, I'm done. Oh, you are? Now you can go to go to bed with us, you know? And they were so proud. You know, they said, I told our librarian that you wrote a book too. And I said, maybe she'll get a Pulitzer Prize, you know, because that's what the children's books get. So it's things like that where I talk talk to them about what I'm doing, which is another part of nonviolent parenting, is talk to your children about everything. So even now, you know, when I go on business trips, it's like, oh, I got to go train. Oh, and so what they tell their friends is that my mommy trains other adults so that they're nicer to kids. Um, <laughs> so they totally understand what I'm doing, or they'll come home and they'll say, mommy, so-and-so got grounded and I tell them that doesn't make sense. You don't learn anything from that. Do you want my mom to talk to your parents? Because that's what she does. She helps parents know how to, you know, so they understand. Um, so they don't like it. The mommy guilt is real. I tell people, um, <laughs> mommy guilt is so real. I'm about to go on a trip next week 
and my daughter has her culmination thing and she's like, don't worry, mommy, I'll FaceTime you. And if your conference is over, you can see the play and I'll show you my portfolio because I know that you're just going to help. You're helping other adults so that they can be nice to kids. I said, okay. Now they don't like it that I'm gone, but um, they understand. So that's always been my motivation. And as long as you talk to your children about why you're doing it and work hard to find that balance, um, they won't resent you. But when you say things like, well, this is what I have to do to take care of you, you know, then you kind of make it seem like I got to be gone because of you. So it's, it's, it's a very different message. And, and with nonviolent parenting, you have to be very intentional about what you say, how you say it, and why you're saying it, and understand the age group in which you're talking to, and brain development, and how they could take it, because children are very literal. So when you say, I have to go because of you, that implies that it's their fault versus, but it's not really because of them. It's a choice you're making. So own your choice and let them know that why you're doing, why you're making the choice to do it. I think that um, when you were talking about the whole framing of the words, it just reminds me of a lot of old school, especially the whole nonviolent piece. A lot of old school methods, like, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. Um, mm-hmm. Do as I say, not as I do. Children are better seen and not heard. You don't talk when grown folks are talking. So it's like, how do you, how did you, I'm not sure what your what your journey was like growing up, but how did you come to the realization, yo, this does not work? Yeah. <laughs> so my I talk about it in my book. My journey um, was interesting. So I'm biracial. My dad is Mexican-American, very traditional, machismo, um, you know, what I say goes. And being a female from the Latino culture, you're afforded even less of a voice, less opportunity for anything. Um, And then my mom is African-American from the South, and so she's very quiet, spoken. Um, How they ended up together is still beyond me. Well, they met in the military, so I guess there's that answer. But um, they didn't stay to get together very long. So I was really able to experience both sides of the coin because I would go to my dad's house um, every other weekend, and the experience there where I was silenced and seen and not heard and get permission before doing anything, including going to the bathroom, was a very different experience than growing up at my mom's house where it was laid back. She trusted us. So I was able to, at a very young age, really understand what I, how, what I liked. You know, I understood the different feelings. I understood how I felt constrained at my dad's and how I felt free at my mom's. So it wasn't difficult for me to really understand what I liked and what I didn't like because it was they were so different growing up Um, and so as I got older um, even with my dad I eventually completely disconnected from him because of how stifling and what I now know was like verbally abusive and we can attribute it to culture but we also have to be wise enough and not accept things for what they are because it's tradition or because it's culture at some point we have to say okay tradition may not be the best thing so so what are we going to do to make it better for others um and so that's the very distinct um decision that i made and not saying that how i was with my mom growing up with my mom was perfect because she wasn't very affectionate Um, And so with my kids, I'm super affectionate. You know, I always tell them I love them. They always give me hugs. They're very affectionate. And that was another 
cognizant choice that I made because it was something that I didn't have. So it's being able to be reflective and understand what worked for you, what didn't work for you, what you wish you had, and give yourself the opportunity and the space to give it to someone else as opposed to saying, well, I didn't have it, why should they? Yeah, I I actually, I think that's, um, I think a lot of people can relate to, whether they want to admit it or not, can relate to having a household where they were stifled. Because again, you know, when children say something, it's don't talk back or, you know, stop or I pop you, you know what I mean? So it's almost mm-hmm. like if you're mm-hmm. trying to defend yourself, it happens a lot on, on the internet or social media, how I think a lot of people are kind of sort of understanding that. I think um, even if it's in a joking way, I think I saw a meme yesterday that said, this is how black parents apologize. And it said, come eat. Right. Like, come get some food. Or they like, just start eat. being nice. Yeah, I saw right. that one too. Yeah. And it's almost like, what about the stuff that happened beforehand? So for those who are trying to, find ways to shed some of those um, old, you know, cultural traditions, where would you, because I know some people are like, well, I didn't did it this way. I don't want them to think, I mean, how do I switch? The switching part is, uh, it can be difficult because one of the things I also talk about in my book is that we teach children how to respond to us. So, the older your child is, the more we have already taught them and conditioned them to respond to us a certain way. So of course, change is going to be a little bit more difficult and might be a little bit harder because your child is going to be a little bit suspicious. Like you've always yelled at me. Why aren't you yelling at me? You know? Um, And so building that trust is going to take a little longer, but that's where having open communication, um, is important, you know, be able to say, you know what, I thought about it. I know I typically yell at you, which, which I'm sure you don't like. So I'm going to try starting today to not yell at you. So if I do, I'm telling you, please, you know, hold me accountable. Please say this, please say that. And that's where I say parenting is a partnership. You know, we have to get rid of the social construct that because I'm older, I can do, say, you know, act however I want to you. That's why there's so much uh, heartache and stifling of children because it's not a partnership. But parenting has to be a partnership. And when I started on this journey, that was another reason why, because I realized I'm a single mom. I have two kids. I'm outnumbered. If we aren't all on the same page, guess who's going to lose? It's not It's not them because it's two of them and it's one of me. And we all know that toddlers, when they're determined, they're determined. So I had to shift my view and say, parenting is a partnership. How can we all get to a joint outcome so that we can all live our best lives that we need? Um, And that includes being able to apologize, being able to say, ooh, I made a mistake, being having the space for the children to be able to tell you, because in a partnership, there's, there's joint accountability. In a partnership, there's two-way communication in a, and in healthy relationships. So if you want a healthy relationship with your children, you have to use the same um, tenants and the same framework that you put into any other partnership that you have, whether it be with your significant other, a business partner, because if you think about it, the way adults treat children, if I treated my significant other that way, the way traditionally treat treat children, we wouldn't be together. If I treated my staff that way at work, 
I would have the highest turnover ever, but yet we do it to children, again, simply because of their age. And that's where I also started looking at this as a human rights issue. Um, and if, we, if adults change their mindset and say, would I want anyone else treating my child like this? Then why, why am I doing it? And, and that's the self-reflection piece that is really the hardest because as adults, we have to be able to say to ourselves, like, oh, maybe I wasn't doing it the best way. And that's a hard thing to do. Um, and especially when we acknowledge that it's because we were raised in that way, another hard thing for people to do is to say, maybe my parents didn't do it the best way. And so, you know, we're, we're really loyal to our parents, especially in the Black community. You know, we're really loyal to our family. So last thing we want to do is to... Uh, make any kind of statement that make it made makes it seem like they did something wrong. And it's not about that they did something wrong. It's about what they knew in the moment and that they did the best they could. But now there's research and now we have we are we have education at our fingertips. So how can we be proactive to make a better life for our children? We always say we want our kids to have more than what we had. Let's take that a step further and not make it about material things but make it about experiences. How can we give them better experiences than what we had? And will we take the time, let's take the time to research that and not find the best price on like cool shoes or whatever it is. You're right. It, I mean, we are really extremely fiercely sometimes to a fault loyal to our families and I think mm-hmm. when we try to have discussions with our family members, it can come off like an attack. Like if you're, if like for instance, if something happened and you know it was like, hey, I I felt that you may not have protected me the way you should have, or I felt like I wasn't loved a certain way because of this experience, and it turns into, well, I gave you a place to stay, I gave you clothes on your back, right. I gave you a place to eat. It, it comes to like a defensive type of response, and then that dialogue is just never really had effectively. So I thought that was interesting that you said that. Now, going back to what you said about your children and using their words in terms of being able to assert themselves, how do you manage that coming from a place of, okay, I'm asserting myself versus being disrespectful? So, like, how do you manage that fine line? Yes, and and I'm glad you used the word assertive versus disrespectful. So in a lot of the trainings that I do, I talk about, I dissect the word respect, um, and we don't use the word respect at home because respect is a very personal thing, and everyone has a different definition. So, so when I'm at a training, I ask people, "What's your definition of respect?" And they'll say things like, "You know, do unto others," or you know, "What you." Well, I want people to talk to me the way they want me to talk to them. Okay, but I just met you. How should I talk to you? Oh, well, and then someone else will say, well, as long as they're they're nice to me. Okay, what's your definition of nice? Oh, and someone else will say, well, as long as they don't, you know, as long as they call me by my first name. Well, I just met you. What's your first name? You know what I mean? So there's all these different definitions of respect that are very personal. So, you know, some some of my kids' friends, they'll be like, hey, Cresha, and their parents will be like, that's disrespectful. Call her Miss Cresha. That's not disrespectful to me. Like, that's my name. But, it, you know, so I don't think it's disrespectful. But if my, so when my kids go to someone's house and they're like, hey, Tamiko, or hey, you know, whoever it is, and it's like, you need to tell people what works for you. And so my thing is, disrespect and what we see is blatant disrespect in terms of like calling people derogatory names or whatever, that's all a learned behavior. 
even the way in which you communicate to someone. The sarcasm, if your child is talking to you sarcastically or rolling your eyes, all of those things are learned behaviors. So when my children are telling me their opinion or telling someone else their opinion, um, it's only disrespect. It's disrespectful to the person who, who is receiving the message if they were taught growing up that someone wasn't that that right isn't afforded to that person to speak to them in that way. So a perfect example, you know, sometimes at my kids' school, they're like, well, they're disrespectful. I asked them to do something and he was, you know, they were telling me, you know, why they did it and they needed to just do it. And I said, oh, well, that's where there's a mis, um, where there's miscommunication. I said, because at home, if we ask them to do something, it really isn't about doing it in this moment. It's about setting parameters and saying, oh, before you go to bed, I need you to brush your teeth. So do it, you know, do it before you go to bed versus I need you to stop what you're doing and do it now. I said, so it's, it's the way in which you communicate and it's the way in which you take in information. I said, um, but if you believe that children shouldn't have a voice, then any response to you is going to feel disrespectful. Um, but if I said, but I always switch it. I said, but if it's two adults, I said, would, would what they said to you, would you feel disrespected if it was someone who was your age? And I think that's where we have to shift our mind. You know, yes, they're children, but if you ask someone a question or ask them to do something, would that same response from an adult feel disrespectful to you? Um, so dis so disrespect is a learned behavior. So my children haven't been disrespected, so they don't know how to be disrespectful. Does that make sense? Intentionally disrespectful or blatantly disrespectful. So they aren't going around calling people names. They aren't going around saying, screw you, I'm not doing it. They may say, okay, I'm going to finish this up first and then I'll do it, which, which to an adult who doesn't want kids to talk back is disrespectful. But listen to what they were actually telling you. They aren't telling you no and screw you. They're saying, okay, let me finish this first. And isn't that what they do in the real world and in the workforce? Your boss doesn't come in and say, I need you to do it now. And if they do, what's your relationship with that boss and how long are you going to work there? So it really is a tough spot to navigate because um, I have a friend who parents the same way and we always have the discussion that society isn't ready for, for these type of children. They just aren't. And so raising children in that environment to help them learn how to navigate without crushing them and because I also don't want them to think this is the norm and get used to being treated in a specific manner because they're children. So it's a, it's been um, somewhat of a challenging road because of that and um, especially with my son because as he gets older you know, I'm, I talk a lot also a lot, um, excuse me, about um, that implicit bias, you know, because I now am raising a black man. Yes, he's only 11, about to be 12, but he's pushing five, six already. So we what? know how the world, I know, I don't even understand it. He's taller. Yeah, it's crazy. And, um, <laughs> and so I know that when teachers or anyone sees him or talks to him, they aren't looking at an 11-year-old baby face. They're, they're looking at a black man, you know, and, and what does that mean for how they see him? What does that mean for 
how the world sees him as he walks down the street. They don't know that's my baby next to me. You know, they see a black man next to me. So it's a very um, heartbreaking and challenging terrain. Um, And also in comparison to my daughter, who is, you know, what some would say, like the quintessential little girl skipping through life, you know, like all these things. Like I always say she could be a cartoon character because she's just so funny. And they're, so the way in which the world sees them and the way in which they have to navigate the world is, is very different. So it's, um, and that goes back to, again, with nonviolent parenting to really individualizing with how you parent your kids, you know, so what I do with one, I can't do with another. And nonviolent parenting is not easy. I say that all the time. There's nothing easy. There's nothing quick and simple about raising children in this way. Um, but who said parenting was supposed to be easy, quick, and simple? I could pop them and smack them and, you know, shut them down, and then I can go on about my life, but what kind of adult am I raising? So it's um, it's definitely a process, a tough process at times. Wow. Um, it sounds like it, it sounds like it's a, it's a very progressive way of raising your children. I think it's interesting that, you know, you and your friend are saying, hey, society might not be ready these type of children and um I also know notice the whole you know teachers or people at school might say they're disrespectful to a degree depending on how they how they address your children so um being an, an expert you know how do you feel about homeschooling I mean and on top of that in the, in the current state of education anyway you know we have Betsy with the Vos over in Secretary of State she don't know what she's doing mm-hmm. so it's like how mm-hmm. do you how do you how, I mean what's your current view on maybe the potential of homeschooling Oh, I would love to homeschool. I really would. Um, <clears throat> I struggle, well, one, because I work full-time. So, I mean, you know, unless I set up, set up a spot for them at my job, which isn't possible. Um, but then I also understand the benefit of of being in a school environment, the socialization piece, the um, learning to interact with different people. So while while it's a struggle and emotionally can be emotionally draining for me. I also appreciate the benefit because I see how my kids are able to code switch and work with different people in a way that some adults aren't even able to. Um, They have come home and they've both been able to identify those adults. You know, they, they, what, one of the things my kids will call them is what they call ridiculous adults. And I'm like, what do you mean by ridiculous? I know. I said, what do you mean ridiculous adults? You know, those adults who don't really care about your opinion. And so when, when that, when they talk to me, we just shake our head. Yes. And I'm like, well, do you tell them sometimes if you already done this, this and that? No, they don't want to know. So we just shake our head. So, so for me, even that is a skill set as much as I'm like, that sucks it's a skill set they're going to need to know because you're going to have a boss who doesn't really care about your opinion and how you feel today. They just need it done. So I'm glad that at nine and 11, you figured out that type and you can adjust accordingly. My kids are extremely intuitive. Um, and, um, which I appreciate and I am too, I can size up a person from a mile away and kind of plan like interact with them accordingly. And, and my kids are the same, which I think is great. And I think all children are. Everyone is born with it. It's a matter of who has been allowed 
to continue to build up that skill and who has been forced to, I guess, for lack of better terms, conform. So I would love to homeschool, but there are so many wonderful schools where if you take the time and see what works best for your child, they can thrive. So, um, you know, my kids are in a small charter school and, and nowadays, you know, you don't have to go to your home school, nor do you have to go to a private school. There are so many small charters that are focused on fine arts, on STEM, on electronics. What does your child like to do? How do they learn best? And find that school that works for your child. Um, so next year, my kids will probably be in two different schools, but they're in two different places and need two different things. And that's and that as adults, as parents, that's what we need to be able to do, which, like I said, Parenting in this way is not easy. And old school people may say, oh, you're just, you know, um, you're just accommodating them too much. They're going to be spoiled. No, I feel like I'm trying to find the best way for each of them to be successful and really build up those areas of strength um, so that they can feel successful and move forward. It's not about what's easiest for me. I would love to have one drop off. I would love to send them to the homeschool and they just walk. But that's why, why is it about meeting my needs? I'm already grown. I figured out what I'm good at. Shouldn't they have the opportunity to do that too? So that's my thought around that. Um, even around schooling, they talk to us a lot at school about grades and about getting into good schools. And I have, I've had a lot of conversations where, you know, my focus isn't grades and teachers look at, look at us crazy. And I said, I need my children to be emotionally and socially secure and equipped for the world because everything else, you know, uh, intellectually will come naturally. This is, this uh, structured learning is a very small part of what they need to be successful in life. So I need them to be socially strength, uh, socially strong, emotionally strong, and be able to function in, in various capacities because this academic stuff, it's, it's not for them. You know, I mean, it's not for anybody. Someone, like you said, higher up said all kids at nine years old need to learn these things about Native Americans, missions, and the gold rush. And when they're 35 years old, how does that help them? So I'm not concerned about uh, academics that will come naturally. Um, so I'm not sold on the best schools and the best test scores. How am I, how's my children surviving and thriving in the environment that they're in throughout the day? You know, I'm glad you mentioned um, that because I know we go, we do learn a lot of stuff in school and we're forced to know that. And it's like, okay, so now I'm 30 years old. I don't know how to do no taxes. I don't mm -hmm. really know how to cope emotionally. But yet I could talk to you about, you know, some random theory that I've never, ever applied ever in my life before. Some random useless history fact or or even false history because you do know, you know, in school, they like to walk oh, over. False. You know, black history is only for a month, and even then it goes back to slavery, and that's that. So I'm yes, really glad you brought that up about how essentially, I mean, to me, I think, honestly, honestly speaking, again, my mother being who she is, we already knew there was also a racial bias with education as well. I asked my mother, I said, mm -hmm. Mommy, think standardized testing is uh, racially biased? She said, of course. Like, she didn't even let me yep. get it out. Of course it is. She said, it's all about wording. As well, she's like, it's about wording. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot of things. So when I found that out, I said, okay, well, maybe I need to reconsider what I'm going to do for my own children once I decide to have them. So I've just been kind of moaning on that for the past two yeah. years. 
Well, and it's it's good, to, and that's what I love too. You know, I love when people think about what they're going to do when they parent, or if you know, as opposed to trying to do it in the moment, you know, not that we can't make mistakes, but just like we plan for everything else, we need to plan for how we're going to parent. And a lot of it has to do with doing the research on our own. So I'd like to help people a lot with that. Because even with standardized testing, last year, I dismissed my kids from the standardized testing because for what, you know, who who is it going to help? They're young. And a lot of parents were like, you can do that. It's like, yes, you need to look at the laws. Standardized testing is not mandatory. They have templates on most of the school websites for you to use to dismiss your children. And it doesn't affect their overall grade. These tests go straight to the state and goes, and depending on how good the scores are, money goes straight into the pockets of the school. So why are you stressing your kids and having them sit in front of, you know, fill in stuff and stress out about test anxiety. It's not for their benefit. And so when I, so it's that piece, educate yourself beforehand. So even with you, it's like, you know, you may not have the opportunity to homeschool, but you also don't have to subject them to standardized testing for no one's benefit, but the higher ups, you know? So it's little things like that, that really are big and can change the outcome of a child's experience in school. I am so happy that you brought up dismissal of standardized testing because I just got a flashback of how old, well, I mean, I got, I had to take a test again for like a talented gifted program too. So, I mean, I guess that was cool. But at the time, I didn't care. I literally took the <laughs> test, like whatever, A, B, C, D, and I got in. But that was, I think, once I got to like middle school, that was the last time that I was so carefree about testing. And it kind of got, I, I actually had test anxiety for, for a bit. Oh, yeah. I was like, I'm oh terrible at testing. Same here. I can literally spit out those same answers in a in a regular discussion, but when it's you know it's a pressure cooker, you know it's kind of like wow, like oh my god, and you you blank out, and then when as soon as you turn in the test, all those answers that you thought you may not have known, they come to you, but it's too late, and it's like oh mm-hmm. damn it, I'm about to get a C on this test or an F on this test because of performance anxiety. It's like come on, like yeah. I don't know. So I'm glad you brought that up. Before I forget. I want to go back to the point that you made about intuitive children and that you believe that all children at some point are intuitive. And you know what? I'm mm-hmm. glad you brought that up, too, because when I talk to adults, they have a point in their life where they were able to move through life, skipping carefree or at least being able to kind of feel people out. And then once an adult or an experience mishandled by an adult stifles that intuition, they start moving at the at – the, uh, direction of someone else's intuition and guidance to the point where now they're 20, 30, 40 years old and they still don't have their intuition tapped into because they've been so used to following it at the helm of somebody else. Right. So I'm so right. glad you brought that up because I don't think a lot of people realize that. I mean, nobody's intuition is better than your own. No, it's not. And, and it's, and part of another um, thing around nonviolent parenting has to do with, ownership of yourself, your body, your own thoughts, and that you're not an extension of somebody else. And that the things that we force children to do at young, at, at a young age, because again, we think it's the polite thing to do. So when a two-year-old walks into a room and they have, it's a family member that they've never met and we make them give them a hug and a kiss, what kind of a violation of their own personal rights is that at such a young age? And we are instilling in them that that is the polite thing to do, that you don't know this person. You might not feel comfortable, but but have some of the most intimate exchanges, 
because I'm telling you it's the nice thing to do. My kids were never forced to do that. And, you know, they had been called rude from time to time, but that's okay. You know, if my kids walk into a room and they aren't drawn to you, I'm not going to make them be drawn to you. And that's why I think their intuition is so high because they make the decision about who they want to hug, who they want to give a kiss, who they even want to kind of say hi to. Now, they aren't rude. And again, because they've been around, you know, me and their dad and other professional people, they know when you walk into a room, it's like, oh, hi, how are you? You know, nice to see you. But if we walk into a family member's house that we haven't seen in a while, no, you don't have to go up and give them a hug and a kiss. You know, that's your personal decision that you can make. Um, so there's a, and, and when you think about how that carries on in, a, in an adult's life, do I feel like I have to give in? Do I feel like I have to say yes and do this sexual act, even if I don't want to, because, you know, now it's just a polite thing to do. And all of that trickles back to childhood. And people may say that's real extra, but it's not. It's the reality of it. And unless we teach our children consent at a young age and what that intuition feels like and let them decide, make those decisions about who they interact with, when and how, they aren't going to learn it at some magical age, <laughs> you know, if they haven't had the opportunity to learn it and try it when they're younger. I am so happy that you brought the issue of consent up. Because I do, I do think that um, it is a little creepy when you when you really think about it. You know, you're six or you're sixteen or whatever. You're going to somebody's house that you you really don't know. Yeah, they might be family, but you don't know them, or they might be a friend or whoever. You don't know them, so and you have to you have to hug or you have to. It mm-hmm. it is a little weird, and and I can see that translating into adulthood where you feel a little bit pressure to do things that you may not want to do. So I'm really glad you brought up the issue of consent and how early you can form that. Um, the right to be able to say, yeah, I, don't, I don't really want to touch you, you know? So yeah, I think that's great. Now, also, you mentioned the book. What is the name of your book? My book is called Losing Control, A Guide to Nonviolent Parenting. And um, I called it Losing Control because society tells us that as adults, we have to control every situation with children. We have to control what they say, how they look, how they talk. We, and they, society tells us that we have control over the overall outcome of their life. And when you think about trying to control that huge piece of it, it can become stressful and it takes away the joy, actual joy of parenting. So I called it losing control because I talk about how to let go of the need to have control over everything, create that partnership, and in turn, um, continue to have that joy and love of being able to be a bystander and a facilitator of somebody learning and growing into whoever it is they're going to be. Because this little person that you birth is not you and you have, and you should not try to make them something that they aren't. So losing control has, you know, it, it kind of draws people attention, but it really, it's, it's a book for adults, like, let it go, you know, let go of that control that you think you have to have, and let this person become whoever it is they're going to be. And don't hold on to that responsibility. Um, speaking of, of letting children or letting people be who they want to be. Um, I know, for me, I grew up very well-rounded, like I, anything I wanted to do, whether it was ballet, tap, jazz, mm-hmm. baton, basketball, <laughs> soccer, 
you know, like I was able to explore that if I showed enough interest. But um, I think sometimes I wonder, and I'm not saying I'm ungrateful for the experience at all, because I know there's some, some kids that grew up that were not able to do that. But I think sometimes that has made me unable to just pick a thing. You know what I mean? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, again, not negating my experience, but I think sometimes it's like too much options. That I, I will literally choose them or every option. So how do you deal with, like, you know, what you were saying with the charter school situation, there's specific ones tailoring to your children's interests. How can you deal with that if a child's interest kind of changes? So one year they may want to do STEM and next year they may want to do something performing arts related. Would you take them out right. of school? No. So there are, so that goes back to the conversation uh, with kids. So when it comes to schools, I give them, you know, we go on a tour and I let them know what the focus is, but with the understanding that, okay, you know, we're making this decision together. Sometimes I have to override decisions for whatever reason, but we're in it for the long haul. And with schools, we change when the, when the struggle outweighs the benefits and the growth that we're seeing overall. Um, and so, but with activities, it can be a little different as well. So it's, it's about teaching them um, to that, that stick to itiveness piece. And so if you're going to sign it, so example, my son, he started playing baseball about fourth grade. And for the first year and a half or so it was a little rocky after every season, he didn't want to do it again. Okay. But then when it was time to sign up again. He wanted to do it. And we always had the conversation where we're going to sign you up and just know that we're signing you up for the season. You play the entire season. It might get tough, but this is, but you know, when we sign you up, you're playing, it's for you to play the entire season. And there were times when he was, he didn't want to go to practice. It's like, I understand it can, you know, it's not fun all the time, but this is what you said you wanted to do. So it's, it's having a time frame. So, you know, at the end of the season, it was like, okay, you got through it. If you don't want to do it in spring, if you don't want to do spring ball, just let us know, you know, but when it's time to sign up again, we'll ask you. Um, so it's having that conversation and that's also how they learn to basically the accountability piece. So you can change as much as you want, but there's a time frame in which you have to go through a process. Um, so even if things get tough at school, we're going to work through this process until me as a parent decides that it's no longer a healthy situation overall, and then we can look at other options. So it's not just like, oh, you want to do that now? Okay, cool. You want to do that now? Okay, cool. Um, it's the it's the facilitated part of it and making sure that in their decisions, um, the adult is there as someone who kind of sees the longevity piece of it and talking them through that process and that decision and maybe the decision as to why why we're we're going to stay here at the moment and not move. You know, we're going to try this and this and this, and let's see if that works. Um, so people can, you can give your children different experiences, but it's not about, you know, halfway through, I don't want to do it. And you say, okay, you don't have to. You know, because then they don't know how to stick to it and, and that, that accountability piece. Yeah, I think that's great. That's a great explanation because I know my mama was like, I done paid this money. You're going to play this soccer. So, uh, yeah, rest, I mean, essentially. Yeah, and, you know, I try not to do the money piece with them because that's the adult <laughs> piece of it. But, yeah. you know, but in the end, it's like, no, 
remember we talked about this and you said you wanted to do it this season. Season's almost done. So, you know, next season, if soccer sucks, then we won't do soccer. Right. Now, I know also to deal with to deal with children, you have to have a certain level of patience. How are you able, are you a naturally patient person or did you have to work to that? Yes. Okay. Patience. Yes. Um, I think everyone has a certain amount of patience and everyone has those things. They just have no patience for. Right. And so I'm a pretty patient person in general. Things that just irk me are, you know, lack of follow through kids whining, you know, things like that. And so what I have learned to do, and I also talk about it in the book is to learn my physical triggers and to be able to articulate, even if it's just to myself, those things that I don't have tolerance for so that as it's happening, I can understand physically what's happening to me and not lash out. And that's the same thing with the kids because kids are going to whine, kids are going to cry and complain, but it's understanding that, okay, that's something I don't have patience for. So instead of taking out my triggers on them, let me be able to regulate myself ahead of time. And then I also talk about in the book that those things that we don't have tolerance and patience for go back a little further, and it's probably because we weren't given those liberties as children. So, again, you know, they weren't given those liberties, but should we have, and how do we give that to our kids? So a lot of parents don't like that kids don't eat all of their food. It's probably because we had to sit at the table and eat every last thing, and so it's hard for us to give that to a child. We don't like to see children cry. A lot of it is because we were told, suck it up, stop crying. There's nothing to cry about. But we now know that children need to be able to feel all of those emotions. So how do we work through that? So I think I have become a very patient person because I totally understand physically when those things are happening that I don't like. And so I can internally um, calm myself if that makes sense. Um, And then I also attribute it a lot back again to my divorce because there was a lot of stress, a lot of tension that I could have easily lashed out on at work, at school, and with my significant other that I had to say, it's not about them. It's about this other stuff. And let me compartmentalize that and work through it myself. So anyone has the ability to do that. Again, it's, it's that self-reflection and self-knowledge piece because it's going to be different for everyone and what 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 I physically go through when I'm getting irritated is different than what someone else is physically going through and how do we work through that I like that so it's almost like you need to check yourself first before you wreck yourself no kidding yes (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but before you wreck yourself. Yeah, but it, but it's true. But in this case, it's not even that you're going to wreck yourself. You're going to wreck a child. You're going to lash out on them because of what you're going through. What they're doing probably is age appropriate. You know, the other thing that, that can kind of irritate me sometimes when the kids are just bouncing off the walls at home and acting silly, there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. They're having a great time. But I know, going back to being at my dad's house, that we were supposed to just sit and be quiet. So it's hard for me to give them that space because it wasn't given to me. So instead of being like, you guys, sit down, be quiet, and making them feel as if they're doing something wrong, when they're not, they're being kids and having fun. I should want to see that. I have to be like, okay, they're fine. And just be like, oh, you guys are so silly. Do you want to go play outside? You know, do you want to go to the park? And reframe it. Um, 
because they aren't doing anything wrong. And so many times we have children feel bad when they're just being kids, Um, but we make them feel like there's something wrong with being a child and there's not. It's, It's our experiences that we bring with us and we weren't afforded. So yeah, it's checking ourselves so that kids can be kids. I love that answer because I, you know, when you get too loud, it's like, hey, y'all sit down, shut up over there. You know, so yeah. <laughs> I, I can I can see that. And you're right. When I mean, you think about some of the things that children do, they really are just doing kid stuff. They're not cussing. Mm-hmm. Well, some of them, some of them not cussing. Yeah, they're not, you know, they're not burning the house down. They're not doing right. what they're supposed to do. They're just expressing themselves. And I think we, you're right. I think we do kind of need to figure out. How can we rectify our inability to be able to do that and be able to let them do their thing? Because essentially they're not doing anything wrong. They're not. They're not. And even coming from home, from from work to home, yeah, work was stressful. But, again, that's our adult lives. But when your kids see you because you've been at work all day, they're excited to see you. They want to play. They want to talk. They want to tell you about their day. We shouldn't shut them up because we're stressed out from work. We need to figure out how to decompress so that we can – fully be back integrated into the kids' lives because they want to share. You know, we shouldn't we shouldn't hush them. We, it should be like, oh, by the time I get to my kid's school and pick them up, I should have figured out a way to decompress. So I could be like, hey, how is school? How is this? And I have. You know, I found these. Um, I'm, I love essential oils and diffusers. We have one in every room at home. And I found these portable ones that um, that you plug into the USB port. So I have one in my office and I have one in my car. So in my car, you see my phone charging and you see the diffuser. I have lavender, I have lemongrass, and the kids are like, they get in the car, they're like, oh, it smells so good in here. I'm like, yes, how was your day? <laughs> you know? I like you know? that. That's smart. I mean, I'm glad you brought up the essential oils because I was, I literally mentioned last episode that I was launching Make Peace of the Day Aromatherapy because um, the class I took, it was really, really effective in terms of the mind-body connection and how something as mm-hmm. simple as an essential oil can really calm you. It could really bring, like, therapeutic benefits. So if you have, like, a super hyper person or a child get into the car and they smell that, it's like, oh, wait, pause. Yes. Let me bring this yeah. down a little bit. Okay, now let's talk. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And I'm it so works. Glad you brought and that people, up. people come into my office and they're like, oh, it smells so good. I'm like, yes, have a seat. Take a deep breath and have a seat, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, and the kids, we have the, the oils, the um, the rollers. And one time my kids came home and they said, Mommy, so-and-so has a hard time sitting down. I was going to take this roller for them to smell or to put some on there. I said, why don't you just have them smell it? Because we don't know if they're allergic to the actual oil. Okay. So when they have like a test coming up or a presentation, they choose which one they need to focus or to relax. They have one in their room at night. And so they just say, which one do you want, buddy? Do you want lavender? Or do you want this one? You know, you're a little congested. Let me go get the eucalyptus and we'll, oh you, they're, God. they're hilarious. No. Yeah. So. I love that. Oh my gosh. My heart is just like so full right now. <laughs> Me and my little brother, we literally talked about that. He was like, I need to go to sleep, Maria. I don't know how to sleep. I was like, I got a blend I can make you. It's good. I got you. (laughs) Yes. It's so necessary. So necessary. But those are the things that adults need to figure out to help them regulate so that, like I said, kids can be kids and have the best experience that we probably didn't have. Prisha, what is your view on um, spanking? 
So I don't spank my kids. I never have. Um, And when I do trainings, one of the, I guess, kind of hook phrases is that I tell people that I don't punish my kids. And so that always gets people going, but that leads to a great discussion on the difference between punishment and discipline. And if you understand the difference between the two and understand that you can't use them interchangeably, then me not spanking children or would, would make perfect sense. And along with spanking, because I believe in nonviolence in general, like I said before, I wouldn't hit anybody. So it doesn't make any kind of logical sense to me that as an adult, I would hit the most vulnerable population, a small child who can't do anything for themselves, who doesn't have any language. Logically, I can't wrap my brain around why society thinks that's okay. Okay, and I, under, I understand that. Um, I guess when you explain it in terms of them being the most vulnerable population, um, it, it it makes you think. It's like, oh, damn, you know, like I got popped. I mean, you know, I got spanked. A lot of us got spanked. So it kind of, why do you why do you think that is, though? Like, why do you think that spanking just became, like, what was it about? Besides the, the obvious spirit of for the child, but, like, what makes a parent want to spank their children? Really, it's frustration. It really, and that's why I always say that nonviolent parenting, it's not easy. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of self-regulation. Um, and and so yelling, hitting, um, spanking, popping, whatever you want to call it, that really is the quick and easy route because you can instantly stop someone from doing whatever you don't want them to do if you physically hurt them or, you know, whether it be physically or emotionally hurt them by calling them names. You can actually get anybody to do anything, and this is even in real life. Um, but the analogy I use is that if if my significant other wanted me to do something and I didn't listen and he popped me, we would be screaming domestic violence. But we don't use that same analogy for children and I think, again, it goes back to the human rights issue, and we don't see children as human beings. We see them as a piece of property, so we believe we can do anything to that piece of property. Um, because if we saw children as human beings, they would have the same set of rights, and they and people would be as appalled as, as a child getting hit as they would if my significant other hit me. Um, but, but there's a complete difference, and it's all because of age. So people see me as an adult, and so if someone hit me or if I, if I was at work and my boss came in and asked me to do something and I said in a minute and they came over and popped me upside the head, I mean, that's a total lawsuit, but this is what adults do to kids all the time. And we're like, yeah, that's what, that's what they need to do to learn because we don't believe in the capacity of children. It's, it's a lot of perspective. I guess I never, I never thought about it like that. So what is your take on punishment then? So punishment, so so first the definite, the, the difference between discipline and punishment. So when you look at the root word of discipline, it's disciple, which is to teach. So I don't punish my children because the act of punishing is to purposely inflict harm or um, something that, that they don't like in order to get them to do something. So um, when we're punished as kids, Uh, Let's say we don't get good grades and we get our uh, video games taken away. That's a punishment, but it's not teaching the child anything. Now, the direct correlation to discipline is if my child comes home and he didn't do well in math, then 
as a disciplinary action. We would talk about it. We would say, well, what is it you need? Well, you know, I know typically when you come home, you play a lot of video games. Do you think that's helping you? Yeah, so what do you think you need to do? Okay, well, let's try cutting down an hour and see how that works. I'm not in it to make him feel bad. I'm not in it to remind him how horrible he is and everything he should have done. I'm having a conversation to see what is it that you need to help you succeed. Um, And that's the difference between discipline and punishment. And, again, when you look at the real world, when you go into, um, like, a work setting, they call it progressive discipline, you know, when someone gets in trouble, you're late. The first time I'm going to talk to you yeah. about it, the next time there may be a write-up. After that, you know, there may be further action. It's called progressive discipline. It's not called progressive punishment. You're not allowed to, um, by law, if I came in late, you can't take my money away. There's laws around that because that's a form of punishment. It's our job as employers to check in with the staff, you know, is everything okay at home? Oh, do you need to start a little bit later? Okay, let's work on that. Let me give you 30 days to get a little better. Ooh, that didn't work. Is it me or is it you? So again, it's using real life situations because if our goal is to raise children who are able to function in the real world, then we need to treat them the way the real world treats us. And like I said, when I walk into work late or if I walk into a meeting late, no one's like, Krisha, why you're late, just leave, just go. Go, no, go, we don't need you in here. We, we don't talk that way to adults, but we do it to children. So the difference between discipline is having that conversation and really helping somebody, anybody learn from their mistake or learn from what isn't working versus punishment is instantly taking something away in hopes of making them want to do better. Um, and the thing about it, when you research, there's research around it, and punishment does work because I hear parents say all the time, oh, no, it works because after I do that, you know, they'll stop. And punishment does work. Punishment works in the moment to stop a specific behavior. But what I always say is that if punishment actually worked, you'd only have to do it once. You wouldn't have kids constantly getting spanked. You wouldn't have kids constantly getting yelled at, constantly getting grounded. It's because punishment works in the moment, um, but it doesn't work long term because children aren't really learning how to change the behavior and be successful. So, yes, discipline is a lot more work. It's a lot of trial and error. You know, with my kids, it does, it's not easy. It's a long process. Um, but the end result is them figuring out what they need, figuring out what time they need to go to bed, figuring out when they need to eat, um, because it's not my job to dictate their lives and then at some magical age of 13 or 14, expect that they'll be able to do it if I haven't given them that safe place and that practice. So, um, no, I don't punish my kids, but there is discipline is needed based on, you know, whatever the situation is. That's some great perspective, Krisha. So where does timeout fit into discipline or punishment? <laughs> so I was going to give you a quiz, but I won't give you a quiz. So when you think about <laughs> when, so, so there, there are two different things. So traditional timeout um, is really about when you think about how traditional timeouts are done, it, the conversation is usually around, You're not able to play with the group. I need you to go sit by yourself and think about what you did. So when you think about discipline versus punishment, the child is sitting by themselves, 
quote unquote, thinking about what they did, but there's nobody next to them facilitating and trying to figure out exactly what is working. There's no problem solving skills taking place. So in that instance, that is called punishment. But there is um, something called uh, what they call time in, where really, you know, and I've done it with my kids, you know, a lot of times when they were younger, or even now when they play together, and they just can't get it together. I just tell them, you know, it sounds like you guys are having a hard time playing together. Maybe you guys should choose something else, you know, and it's not that they're in trouble, but I'm just listening. And you guys can't seem to agree on what to play with. And that's okay. If you want to play jump rope, and he wants to play baseball, that's fine. Check back in with each other in about 30 minutes and see if that works. And that's completely different because then they have the chance to either do that and no one's in trouble or they can come together and be like, oh, no, but we want to play together. Okay, let's just do something completely different. And so that's the difference where because there's going to be conflict in life or in general. um, And so, again, going back to real world relationships, if with my significant other, if I'm not liking the way he's talking or the way he's doing something, I can't send him to a timeout and say, think about, you know, how you're going to talk to me next time and expect that our problems are going to be fixed. So when you look 10, 15 years down the line, this is why children are unable to express themselves and their emotions and really work through conflict because they were sent away from a situation that someone that an adult could have walked them through problem solving skills so again it starts really young you know because if we send kids to a corner when they're three years old to get them away from conflict and we don't facilitate that discussion how are they going to be able to do it when they're 15 how are they going to be able to do it when they're 25 or 35 they're not they're going to walk away and expect that when I come back it's just going to be better wow I think you're decoding a lot of adults right now I think a lot of us well I I don't know I don't think I've had a problem communicating but I do know that there are I mean like I I will legit we'll get it off if I need to but with I know a lot of adults that I do know they do have struggles communicating because they're used to shutting down walking away Mm -hmm. and then just magically expecting things to to be resolved and it really isn't the case and then when you do try to have the conversation to get to the root to avoid this happening again, they still shut down and the discussion ends up becoming counterproductive. And it, it really does, it roots back to childhood. Like, wow, it's amazing. It does. But you, but you really, like, think of, like, that's that's really a, a hell of a, like, a, a revelation. Nobody ever yeah, and, and back then that when far. you And then if you go a little further into the emotions that children are allowed to feel, children aren't allowed to have emotions. You know, the only acceptable emotions for for most adults and children is happy because as soon as they're sad, we tell them, you're okay, you're not really hurt. As soon as they're mad, we roll our eyes like, what do you got to be mad about? You don't work. As soon as they're frustrated, they're disrespectful because, you know, so they don't learn how to feel those emotions. So they've also been stifled and shut down emotionally, which, again, when you stifle their ability to feel emotion because the only thing acceptable is happiness, and then you stifle their ability to effectively and in a safe space work through conflict, think about the adults we have in this world now. I mean, those two things literally link back to childhood where they are only allowed to be happy and only allowed to walk away from situations because I might blow up. Well, you only might blow up because you've never been able to have the, you've never been taught how to 
have healthy anger. There's nothing wrong with being angry. And that's another part of nonviolent parenting where my kids and myself, they're allowed to feel every single emotion. You know, the only um, thing that I kind of have barriers about is that you can't hurt yourself or others. And that's really how it is in the real world, too. Um, There was a time when my daughter, you know, I don't even know why, when she would get really upset, she would just scream, like scream at the top of her lungs, sometimes in the car, sometimes at home. And she wasn't able to express why she was mad. I could tell when she was starting to get frustrated. um, And then, you know, there just comes a point where she would get upset and she would scream. So if she was at home, it was like, I know, you know, Nessa, you're, you're upset. Now, if we were downstairs in the living room, I would tell Nessa, you know, we're down here watching TV. I understand you're upset. If you want to go scream outside or in your room, that's fine, you know, or, or just let me know when you're ready. And she would go upstairs and scream, and then she'd come down and be like, Mommy, I'm ready. Okay, come on down. You Aww. know, you go better now. Do you want to tell me what's wrong? Um, but then in the car, if she'd get upset, I have vertigo. And so it was a loud pitch scream. So that, you know, that loud pitch in my inner ear just wasn't working. So I would tell Anessa, you know, mommy, remember mommy gets dizzy when it's really loud. I said, so in the car, you know, you can scream into a pillow, but I can't have you scream really loud because it's not safe when I'm driving. So she understood that too. It was never, it was never about her being wrong for being angry or upset. It was about creating the space for her, but also reminding her, you know, there are other people in the house and, you know, if you want to be upset, you can be upset upstairs, but it's not a timeout, you know, and it's your choice, you know, you can go wherever you want to be upset. Um, And then, you know, because she was able to work through it one day, she literally just stopped doing it and maybe she grew out of it, you know, but a lot of times children's behaviors continue because we stifle it. So they're going to do it because even if it's for negative attention, because if I scream and at least you're talking to me and you're trying to get me to stop and you're in my face, but if I'm smiling and happy, you kind of just leave me alone. So um, I don't know if she stopped because she just outgrew it or because it was acceptable. So let me try some of the other things that she's trying to teach me how to do. I see. I see. That's, um, it sounds like your children are very smart. Like when it comes to (laughs) understanding, look, I know you're upset. I know you need to release, but please at least respect the fact that it has the ability to make things unsafe for all of us. So Mm -hmm. I guess you thought like, okay, well, you know, okay, well, let me, let me, you know, keep cool. Or not, or not do it in this way. So I think that's very interesting. Um, have you ever had a situation, or maybe I should just ask, what's a nonviolent parent um, parenting way to handle when a child is not speaking to their parent? Like I know sometimes children just don't want to talk, and I know mm-hmm. that's taken as a big sign of disrespect. Mm-hmm. So how how, do, how would you handle that? I I I take it back to real or. I don't want to say real world because that is a real one, but adult life. So again, if um, it goes down to seeing children as having the ability to decide when they're ready and when they're not, and that's the consent piece as well. Because again, if my significant other is upset at me and I'm like, I don't want to talk right now, and he just stays in my face, you know, the the rest of the world would be like, dang, he didn't even listen. You were trying to tell him. Like, does he have no respect for how you feel? It's the exact same thing. So adults need to realize that when children aren't talking, 
they aren't ready to talk at that moment and that it needs to be that needs to be okay so it's the adult it's that whole losing but going back to my book losing control we need to let go of the fact that children have to do what we want them to do in the moment they're their own people whatever the situation is has them feeling a certain kind of way and so we need to respect that and a lot of times in general, whether it's adult or children, this is why understanding brain development is so important. When any human being is really upset, crying, angry, fearful, we get a big rush of cortisol in our brain. When that cortisol goes in our brain, we literally do not have the ability to think logically. And so when children are having a tantrum, like those two-year-olds, the terrible twos and all that, and parents are there trying, what's wrong, what's wrong? Physiologically, they literally cannot hear what you're saying. They cannot answer your questions. And if you think about a time when you have been really upset, whether you're hysterical or you're just really sad, and people are asking you what's wrong, you can't speak. You know, you're just deep in your emotions, and, and your good friends will understand that, and they'll just stand next to you, they'll rub your back, and then when you're ready, you start to talk. And that's the same kind of consideration we need to give to children. Stay next to them. Let them know I'm here. Don't get upset because it's not about you and you feeling disrespected. It's about saving space for your child because in this moment, something is really bothering them. So just sit next to them, rub their back, and when they're ready, they're going to talk. They're going to crawl into your lap. They're going to give you a hug. Whatever it is they'll do to let you know that they're ready. I really think this is a great concept and um, even though society may supposedly, quote unquote, may not be ready, they don't have to get ready because the, the status quo isn't working. So it's I think not. that we it's need to not. try an alternative uh, an alternate method in order to really build up and raise and send into the world really productive, functional members of um, our future society. They need to be able to hold their own and to be able to survive and navigate the terrain, which really isn't um, safe. It isn't really um, as fluid you know, as as we would like to think it is, especially for children of color, especially. Yes, especially, yeah. Really take the time to connect with your child. There's a big piece about connection and understanding that your child is separate from you and really having fun with children and with parenting. The stressors of life can really bring us down, but if you listen to a child, really listen to them and understand how the world looks to them and operates them from where they are in that moment. It's so refreshing. You can have tons of laughs, not laughing at them, but laughing with them. And it's just a breath of fresh air. I always say my kids keep me young, um, but it's because I allow myself to get lost in their world. And, and because of that, they allow me into their world. And that's what's missing is children and adults being a part of each other's world and being invited. So children feel so alone because the adults don't want to take the time to learn their world. We have to because their world is what the world is becoming. And so really understanding that children are here to teach us how to be if we allow them to lead us. Um, and that's the most heartfelt thing I can say is that, you know, we have to be open to learning from our children and understand that we don't know it all. We don't have to be perfect and they don't want us to be perfect. They just want another human being to truly love them unconditionally. And that's hard because we, it wasn't given to a lot of us, but again, 
these this younger generation really deserves it. And it's not about nonviolent parenting either. It's just about nonviolent interactions with young people, whether it be you know, your cousin, your little brother or sister, children you work with, nonviolent interactions across the board. I really, it just goes back to checking yourself. Yeah, I mean, that, that really is the message. Like, we have to check ourselves. And it's, you know, I do a lot of guest lecturing, like, at junior colleges um, or universities, but in the intro child development courses. So it's a lot of, you know, maybe 18 to 25-year-olds. Some have kids, some don't. And um, I really talk about it as adult self-regulation. That's, that's all it is. You know, we always want children to learn how to self-regulate. We always want them to learn how to calm themselves. But, again, it's a learned behavior. If, you see, if they see mom going off, you know, every time she's upset, why isn't this child going to go off every time they're upset? So it, it goes back to self-regulation and those meditation skills and those mindfulness skills and, you know, all those you know, things that people want to say are like hippie, those essential oils is like, no, 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 all those things will keep you in check. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there anything else? Cause I feel like we covered a lot of ground, so I want to make sure whatever you want to talk about <laughs> nonviolent parenting, like we can get everything covered. Cause I think this is a really good subject matter that I think it'd be very informative and I think people should hear um, about it. <sighs> yeah. Um you know, the only thing I would say is to stick with it. Um, I, When my ex and I separated, I've always been very passionate about this, so passionate that in our court documents, I had my lawyer put in there, and luckily the judge agreed that neither one of us can physically hurt our children or physically discipline our children, right, basically no spanking or hitting. So when I talk about that in some of my lectures, they're like, you let the judge dictate how you raise your kids. No, no, no. I asked the judge to help me protect my children um, and to make sure that, and, and thankfully there was a judge who agreed that no, hitting children wasn't the best way. But, but that statement is an ego statement because you don't think that you need to hear from anybody else that there is possibly a better way. And so in the beginning, their dad, he was, you know, was like, oh, here she goes with this child development stuff. Um, but now that they're older, he truly appreciates. He's like the king of, you know, sitting down with the kids and having conversations with them because he realizes, dang, I can just talk to these kids, you know. And, you know, when they're two or three, you think it's silly. But when they're seven or eight and they come to you and tell you about what's going on at school and you're like, ooh, let's go talk to the teacher, and, and the, the seven-year-old sits there and tells the teacher how they're feeling, you're, you know, that's where it's like, oh, I, I get it now, you know. Um, and so it may feel silly when they're little, but trust me, you know, you're going to see the fruits of your labor um, when they talk to you and when you see them with the strength and the ability and the courage to talk to other people and stand up for themselves. And, again, that's, that's really what we want, at least what I want for my kids. You know, I, don't, I want them to know that their voice is important. You know, as women, you know, when you're raising daughters, we, we, there's that innate fear that they're going to lose their voice, that they're going to lose themselves, that they're going to want to go with the flow. Um, and as males, there's this feeling that they're going to lose their ability to feel and their ability to, you know, want to be hugged and loved. But they only lose that ability when we stop giving them that space. So understanding that parents are the leaders of the household 
parents are who these children are looking up to first and foremost. Yes, there are um, friends and influences in the community, whether it be, you know, uh, videos or whatever it is that's out these days, um, but they will always remember what you do as a parent. Um, I did a keynote not too long ago, and I it was called Parental Leadership. And until a, we – parents has a very power over – um, connotation to it because again that's what society says but no you're a leader and so you can call yourself a parental leader you can call yourself whatever you want you can call yourself a facilitator but those children are watching you and the outcome of those children are a result of how you lead them and how you allow them uh, to be guided um, sometimes I have people come over and help like if I have a late meeting and one of my old co-workers who's a good friend she says Krisha I don't you know you asked me to come babysit your kids. She's like, I'm more like a supervisor because uh, they got this down. They know exactly what they need to do. I'm just kind of the adult in the house. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much how they are. And that's what we want. We want, you know, I mean, you know we want kids. It's so funny. My significant other is always like, you don't have kids. Your kids are like, have been like 30 years old for like ever, you know, because they can just function. But we want, we, that's what we want. We want kids to function. Um, you know, and so remembering the end result. And um, one more thing that just came to my mind, sometimes I do a training because we let fear guide us. Um, but if again, if we check ourselves and what's in our brain and think about what our fear really is and is that fear really um, what, realistic, if you will. So we say we want kids to do good in school, so that they can get into a good college. Well, let's think about what we're saying in the age of the child, but then also let's think about what would happen if they don't get into college. I mean, is that really the worst thing? I, I, you know, I don't think so. I don't have those conversations with my kids. So when we have those fears, are they true fears based on what you're seeing in front of you? Or are they fears based on a life that you want your child to have that might not be their life, might not be their dream? but it's yours. Um, and so making sure that we're really guiding the child as an individual human being and that you're not guiding them towards a dream and a vision of success that you have created before they were even born. Because we, we parent a lot from a place of fear, fear that they're going to get hurt, fear that they're not going to get into a good school, fear that they're going to fail. And, you know, I always say, like my son was about to fit, was going to fail a class theater this year and you know I know it frustrates the teachers but I'm like it's sixth grade theater like I don't really see the ramifications for his whole life in this you know what I mean not to be like arrogant but honestly like you know and and along with school because we hold school on such a high pedestal it's looking at school differently um, and so, and again, knowing your child's strengths. So my son is very good at math. My daughter's very good at math. They're both very, very analytical, good at math and reading. Um, but they're not that fond of science. So for me, if they come home with a C in science, I know that that's, that they worked hard to get that C because that's not their strong point. Now, if they came home with a C in like math or English, then it's like, hey guys, let's have a conversation because I know you're, you're good at this. I don't expect them to have straight A's and everything because if you think about college, if they do decide to go to college, we have the ability to focus on one thing. 
So why, again, the public school system expects kids to have straight A's in every single subject when as adults we're able to become content area experts? That's another thing that I don't understand, and so it's something that I don't push down to my kids. I know what their strengths are, and I am going to acknowledge them for the work that they've done because I know their capacity. Wow. You're right, because in college you definitely are able to hone in after you do your little your little uh, core or whatever. Then you end up mm-hmm. being able to dive right on in to even a minor or in a major. So that's interesting. So yeah. Yeah, that's that's dang. That's it's like all these aha moments. So, <laughs> but we put so much stress geez. on these kids, and again, when you think about teen suicide and all, it's because we want them to be good at we want them to be good at everything from sports to math to science to writing. It's like, but I'm not. You know, I make a joke at work all the time. You know, when we start doing stuff with math, it's like, no, I, that's why I went in child development because I don't do math. You know, we got a business person over there to do that. But, you know, but we have 15-year-olds that we hold to a different standard than we hold adults to. Why? You know, and then we want to know why they're trying to commit suicide. Well, because they're unrealistic expectations. I agree. I think math wasn't my strong point. I wish they would have taught me how to do taxes in high school (laughs) versus pre-calculus. I mean, I get it. Yes, some of that stuff is applicable. But when you're a child, you don't know that. And even as an adult, you don't really make the correlation. So. I wish that the public. I still haven't made the correlation. <laughs> right, like I mean, like it, with the cars. Like I understand formulas when it comes to like calculating interest and you know APRs for cars. That makes oh sense. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wish that would be presented as real life experience with respect to right. teaching math. So I think there's a lot of flaws when it comes to um, the education system. It's really disappointing. But um, like you were saying earlier about the whole charter school. Um, finding a school that actually caters to your child's needs and first figuring out what your child's good at and what they want to study, that kind of puts them in a better position to um, to flourish um, academically mm-hmm. because they actually like what they do. So, yeah. Um, yeah, instead of forcing them to, you know, take up something they'll need to, that's not really going to enrich them down the line. No, no. We do a lot of things as parents. I, I personally think for bragging rights, you know, we, we want to be able to say that our child is at this great school. I mean, I don't personally, but I know a lot of people do, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, it's like bragging rights. But really, you know, when people are like, oh, what school do your kids go to? And I tell them the name. They're like, oh, I never heard of it. And I'm like, oh, it's a small charter. And I remember one parent was like, oh, is it academically challenging? I was like, no, that's not really what we're looking for. And she was like blown away. You know, she's like, what are, what are the um, national test averages? I was like, oh, I have no idea. Like, <laughs> Ew. I no idea, and I don't care. Like, I, I don't, don't like that. That sounds like the <laughs> child version of, oh, so what do you do? You know? No, like, it really is. Ugh. And that's how it is out here. They want to know, you know, where your child, what, what is your child? What sports do your child's kids play? Oh, do you do tutoring? It's like, no, my kids come home and play outside. Like, my kids are for real kids. Like they will be outside in the driveway with a ball and and playing kickball and they will have the trees as a different bases. It'll be them too. They'll be like, Mommy, you be the ref. My kids are kids. Like the only thing they do after school is dance and baseball. And that's it. <laughs> oh, the good old days. I remember the, those No, days. really. It's the good old days where they will come in 
smelling like little puppy dogs. And I'm like, all right, go hop in the shower before dinner because uh, you guys are playing hard. <laughs> My mom would say, you smell like outside. Go take a, go take right. a shower. <laughs> that is funny. Exactly. But, you know, hey, that's how I know that they were living it up out there. <laughs> Well, that's good. That's good, Krisha. I'm glad you shared all of this information. Like, again, like I said, whenever I have my kids in 2025 or whenever that's going to be, <laughs> I'll definitely, I feel like I need to save this episode or email you and be like, hey, so I'm pregnant. I need to get a plan. Like, ah! For real. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, like, let's say if people want it, again, they can reach out to you through your Gmail. What's your Gmail again? It's uh, my first and last name, Krisha Esquivel, K-R-I-S-C-H-A-E-S-Q-U-I-V-E-L, at gmail.com, because it can't get any longer than that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, but so the East part might be easier just to do Facebook or Instagram. Um, in November, October, I will be um, doing a TED Talk on nonviolent parenting, so once that um YouTube video is up, you know, that'll be a good place to congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Very excited. Very nervous. I don't get nervous for much, but I'm, you know, I'm uh, appropriately nervous for this. So (laughs) you can do all of this off the cuff because we, you know, I told you there's no interview structure for my show. So if you can do all of this for over an hour off top, I think you'll blow the TED Talk away. You know what I mean? Like, Well, and that's the hard part is that, uh, you know, TED Talks are short. So. Oh, wait, <laughs> so 10 minutes? Uh, uh, yeah, something like that. Yes, pretty short. So my thing is, okay, I can talk for days. How do I hit the right things and not talk for days? So, oh, I see. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's the joke is like, wait, what, are re- what really are the most important things? But it'll be good practice for me. For what? I don't know. But it'll be good practice. <laughs> I think that's great. Well, congratulations again on that TED Talk, Krisha. I think you'll, like I said, you're going to knock it out the park. Thank you. Thank you. How can people get in touch with you? I am on Facebook, which is my first and last name. I am on Instagram. Um, and then my email is my first and last name at Gmail. Um, so I get a lot of inbox messages. I get a lot of uh, requests for trainings um, from school districts or whatever it is. Um, I just really like to make myself available because sometimes people call me at desperate times and they just need a word of encouragement. They just need to know that, no, you're not crazy. The school is. No, there's nothing wrong with your child, but let's do X, Y, and Z to start to partner with the people at your school. I get a lot of messages from women of color about their young sons and that just really breaks my heart um so you know reach out to me get the book it will definitely give you tips to help you and to guide you on having conversations with your children and with other adults who interact with your children all right and you have heard it first here at conversation with Krisha Esquivel and that was this week's episode with Krisha Esquivel. Thank you so much again for interviewing with me. And I really enjoyed um, a different perspective. I, I don't know if you guys heard, but my mind was blown like four or five times. I had hella aha moments. This is something that is actually kind of foreign. Well, it's not kind of. It's completely foreign to me as I'm not a, a, a mother. I don't have children. So it's just kind of interesting to um, get perspective from someone who's been there, done that, over 20 years of experience. And she is currently raising her children um, 
you know, successfully with this type of technique. So it's always it's always cool to get a completely different perspective and see what you can take from it and learn from it and, you know, hopefully apply it to your own life, whether it's now with your own children or how you deal with children if you don't have any or in the future. So it's really cool. But, uh, yeah, if you want to reach me, you can do so at spiritualhomegirl.com, Instagram, spiritualhomegirl, and make peace with the day. Um, shout out to those who are new followers to make peace with the day. I know you guys notice that this is not about spiritual homegirl. You probably won't see any photos of me on make peace with the day. You will see lots of cool, informative um, photos and and um, topics to discuss. So I'm really happy to finally have launched that. And you can also find me on YouTube and Facebook at spiritual homegirl. Um, it's been a very interesting interesting week like I have been kind of stagnant on a couple of things that I needed to get done and that's not like me and usually when that happens it's because I don't have the how and I know a lot of y'all feel me on this because y'all hit me like yo I just don't know what to do I don't know how to start and I have to take my own advice sometimes because I always say I'm going through it just like y'all. I'm learning and growing and experiencing this journey one day at a time like you all, as we all are. So I was like, you know what? What is it that is causing me not to find the how? And it's because I have shiny new object syndrome. And AJ Joyner, shout out to AJ Joyner. He is really, really awesome. He's a freaking marketing genius. Um and definitely one of the coolest guys in Atlanta. If you guys have not checked him out, you should do so at AJ Joyner um, on Instagram and get some game. But, um, yeah, like, he kind of explained it to me. Like, I have so many. When you're a creator, and I think we all are creators in our own right. But um, he was like, you know, when you have all these ideas, you want to execute, execute, execute. And then once you get one idea, you're executing. And then you get another idea in that, you know, in that one topic of executing something different and then you want to put some attention to that to make sure you don't lose it next thing you know that happens and you have a whole spider web of all these damn ideas and it's like <laughs> you have to focus on one and I realized that I've been so used to multitasking I used to pride myself on multitasking too much that I forgot the importance of what it's like to step back and just do things one task at a time or prioritizing out of the 15 ideas I want to do I need to pick three of the best that I got enroll with it like matter of fact I was creating a podcast reel and my producer was like hey pick five good episodes I sent that man a list of 13 to 15 episodes that I liked they were all my favorites and he was like okay uh let's narrow this down and I was like damn too many options so I'm saying all that to say that sometimes we create all these options for ourselves whether it's in our minds and ideas or sometimes we are presented with options and it becomes too um too much to handle or you just can't pick but um prioritizing is very key and I know sometimes we don't want to assign priorities because we all think that what we have going on is important or the multiple projects or multiple ideas or multiple plans or multiple options um are all important but there's ultimately one that you may dig more than the other you can even relate this to your relationships you might be dating multiple people you know you might like one more than the other don't even front yeah, they might be special in their own way, but you might you might like one more than everybody else. So I'm saying don't be afraid to be selfish and choose the three or the or the minimal or um or shortest list of options, or even if it's just one option that works solely for you in its entirety, in totality, the best option 
for your greater good, whether it's business, whether it's personal, anything, anything you got going on in your life, whether it's self-care options, fitness options, anything. It could be anything. What to eat. Pick the best option. Try picking just one. If you can't pick one, just three. And see, because I know sometimes that can also create stress when there's so many things in front of you. It's like, oh, my God, this is overwhelming. I don't know how to deal and sometimes we have to remember, yo, let's let's not create problems for ourselves. Let's just do one activity. Let's just pick three options. You know what I mean? So I just wanted to uh, share that with you all. And actually, since I have prioritized, I'm not overwhelmed as much anymore. Um, I think now at this point, it's just getting getting it done, which makes me happy. So I'm really excited about that. Also, I had my, my uh, homegirl meetup on Sunday. Shout out to Kenya, Yolanda, and um, Nina. They went to the butterfly festival with me and i was really excited i know i miss some of y'all you know some of y'all was on cp time it's okay we got another meetup coming up <laughs> soon just be on time so we don't miss each other but i love kicking it with butterflies for those who don't know it's one of my spirit animals and it was really cool again to kick it in a tent full of them while they're flying all over you and and hanging out and bonding you get to really get up close and personal with butterflies and learn more about them and um it's really cool like butterflies have it hard I know you're probably like, girl, what? They're just butterflies, but they're not. Butterflies are so delicate. And their life cycle, if I remember correctly, is like 60 days. And there's one generation that flies to Mexico. And you guys survived that trip. So even through all the beauty of what a butterfly stands for, and you see it and it just seem like insignificant flying insects, they really are, um, to me, an example of resilience and beauty through the turbulence of life. When you think about how much um, or what they go through, first off, they're laid, they're, you know, it's eggs laid on a leaf. And then I think it's a milkweed leaf, if I remember correctly. Then they grow into caterpillars and they eat and they eat and they eat. And sometimes they'll eat their own skin. Like if they shed something, they'll eat that too. And they eat hella leaves. Then they jump into, you know, this cocoon. And, um, well, actually... <sighs> It's not that simple. If you Google how a butterfly goes from a cocoon to like a butterfly, it's it's a process that'll kind of have you shook. You're like, damn, they go through a lot to come out here as beautiful as they do. And then once they do, they got to survive the journey of, you know, because their wings are also transparent. They're, like I said, they're very fragile, too. So all it takes is a little something and their wing can get torn off or they can die. So you have to survive that journey. And then for the monarchs. You also have to survive the journey of getting down to Mexico safely. There's also, um, I think there's like a, it's not a festival, but it's like a sanctuary or some kind of location where there's a whole bunch of monarchs that kick it and hang out there <laughs> once they make the trip down to Mexico. But you still got to go through that. So I don't know. It's just, it's something about butterflies. I've always like transformation and beauty and endurance and resilience that I've always thought was fly. But that was fun, and um, I really enjoyed kicking it with. And I don't know if you guys knew, but I also interviewed Kenya um, a few episodes back uh, from Black Minimalist, and her and Yolanda are um, a part of that group, and Nina's one of the homegirls. So um, I really enjoyed that. My mom was there, and my stepdad was there, so it was really cool to kick it with my folks. But the next homegirl meetup will be coming up soon. Just make sure you guys stay in tune. Sign up for the newsletter, too. Because I don't like the fact, and I say this a lot. Some of y'all probably like, Marie, you finna go to the social media thing. Not quite. I just don't like being at the mercy of social media. Like, a lot of memes go around saying, oh, social media, um, you know, if they cut out Instagram, you're not going to be a model no more. You're not going to be a whatever no more. But I do want to make sure that I stay in touch with my tribe. 
through um through other means in case you know something happens on social media and I can't reach you guys anymore. So make sure you guys sign up for the mailing list so you are not um sleep to anything or missing out on any events. But yeah, that's about it, y'all. I ain't want to hold you. I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode again. If you have any feedback, definitely hit me up. But this has been another episode of The Spiritual Home Girl. My name is Maria. And remember, trust the journey and trust yourself. Peace. Peace.